This episode is sponsored by Stanford University's Strategies for Sustainability Professional Education Program. Explore the frameworks and tools needed to promote sustainability in your organization. Courses online and in person. Visit globalimpact.stanford.edu. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, here as usual at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a conversation with Sacramento's Chief Innovation Officer, a report from last week's climate reality training from one of our very own raising the business voice on climate action, and how do sustainability professionals stay focused in these hyper-partisan times? I'm voting to stay the course this week on 350. It's March 22nd, 2019. Happy spring, everybody. And welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from the uh, blooming, I hope, Garden State is Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. Well, not blooming yet, but the robins are back. Yay, robins. Yay, robins. Yay. I always, um, make, I always get a big charge out of seeing them bopping around on my, on my lawn. Um, and they just, they came out in full force this week. The flocks are back. That's great. We have doves in our backyard and a family of two or three or four, I'm not sure, how many uh, doves and and they show up this time of year? I don't know where the heck they went over the winter, but um, they come and they they actually lay eggs right that we can see little nests. It's so much fun to watch the progress right here in our very own backyard. You know, bizarrely, I actually saw two sandpipers yesterday, and I I I don't live near the ocean. <laughs> I was a little a little puzzled by that. I'm hoping they're on their way somewhere, but. Uh, I saw them as well. So, but yeah, I love waking up to the birds that I, I don't set my alarm. I, I tend to not, tr I wake up with the, with the, with the light and with the sounds of, of, of my environment. And I love the spring birds. So yay. Nice, nice, nice. Um, let's move over to some uh, things that are going on in the green biz world. Uh, and one of those, and we put out a press release on Wednesday this week, uh, about Verge Carbon, which is the latest addition to the Verge family of concurrent conferences. Um, listeners may remember that last year we took Verge and broke it up into three concurrent conferences under one roof, Verge Energy, Verge Transportation, which is about transportation and mobility technologies, and Verge Circular, obviously about the circular economy. And this year we're adding a fourth, Verge Carbon which is focusing uh, on carbon removal, uh, drawdown for, as some people know it, which is to say not how to emit less carbon and, and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. I mean, that's important to do, obviously, and all the commitments around low carbon technologies and carbon neutral pledges and renewable energy pledges and all of that. This is how do we remove the stuff that's already there the technologies and practices that result in drawing down greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and sequestering them in the soil, underground, 
or in a growing number of innovative products and materials, building products, things like concrete and other things that uh, uh, can be made from the po from polymers derived from things like methane and other greenhouse gases. So, uh, and, and then how all of that is becoming a business. What's the business opportunity in carbon removal? And uh, I think most scientists will tell you that if we're going to solve the carbon crisis that we have to do all the things we're talking about, renewable energy and, and, and things like uh, dealing with refrigerants and so many other technologies that, that we're looking at, but we also have to draw down what's already there. And it turns out there's a lot of different ways to do that. So uh, I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, I'm super excited too. We have some amazing advisors yep. on this. Yeah. I'm looking here at the, the list, and I'm, I'm not even sure who to mention because everyone is each one is better than the other, if you well, will. Well, a couple worth mentioning. Uh, Noah Deitch, who is the executive director of Carbon 180. Uh, I happen to be on their advisory board, but uh, even if I wasn't, I would be in awe of the work that they're doing to uh, take do exactly this. It should be a trade association, in effect, a research organization, a think tank on... Uh, how this becomes a business. So Noah and his team are doing great work. Uh, John Foley, who we had on stage at, as the closing plenary at uh, GreenBiz19, he's a former head of the California Academy of Sciences and is now the executive director of Drawdown, Project Drawdown. And there's our friend Julio Friedman, uh, formerly of the Department of Energy, uh, Lawrence Livermore Lab, and now, now uh, senior scholar at the Center for Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, and on and on. And some corporates, too, like from Interface and General Mills, all doing some interesting things. Well, and I'm really excited about one of the startups that we have involved, Opus 12. I've been hearing a lot about them. They're pretty secretive so far, but we have the founder Yeah, out, so. Itosha Cave. And yeah, yeah. Uh, she's, yeah she's, she's amazing. And mm -hmm. yeah, lots of great stuff. So uh, the business of carbon removal, uh, you'll be hearing more about that. Uh, we're writing more about it, and we'll be going in-depth at Verge 19, October 22nd to 24th here in beautiful downtown Oakland. But for now, let's take a step back to our Week in Review. So I'll start us off this week, Joel. I'll grab the microphone. One of the first stories I'd like to point to, the sleeper issue for new mobility tech is, drumroll, insurance. Katie Fernbacher, our tremendously awesome transportation analyst, has a very thoughtful essay about the role of insurance and how it may make or break the autonomous vehicle movement. Um, specifically, the question goes to liability. And uh, for, for, for a brief primer, for those who don't follow AV or self-driving cars all that much or, or vehicles, there's lots of levels of autonomy. So you, you have the range from one to five where, where you have very little control of the, of the computer, if you will, to almost complete control of the computer, or actually complete control of the computer in, in terms of the, of the vehicle and, and what's, what's, quote, driving, quote, end quote. And the issue really focuses on sort of the mid-range. So when, when there's shared, shared operational responsibility for a vehicle, who is liable if there's an accident, if someone's um, hurt or killed, God forbid, 
um, if the vehicle goes out of control. Well, it's also important to point out this isn't just about autonomous vehicles because uh, Katie writes about here in, in, our, in our own city of Oakland, there's been some issues around scooters and who's liable over scooter accidents on roads, particularly if the city you know, hits a pothole, of which there's more than a couple here in Oakland, I have to say. Um, and you know, the scooter companies say the city's making unreasonable demands to release the city from liability, even if it's not keeping up the roads. And, and so uh, this goes to a whole range of transportation issues as we create new forms of transportation, new business models, uh, new forms of ownership. Uh, all of a sudden, liability across that becomes a real issue. And it reminds me of a conversation I had a while back in the early 2000s with the head of the clean tech practice for a large San Francisco law firm. And I was uh, talking with them about the clean technology movement as it was back then. And I was curious why they were interested. And I said, where do you see the biggest opportunities for legal pr practice in clean technology? And without missing a beat, they said, litigation. I said, what? He said, yeah, what's going on here when you build a wind farm or a solar farm or any number of new clean technology businesses, there's all of a sudden things that have never been decided before. Is it a, is it a utility? Is it a building? With, you know, who owns it? Who has liability? And the only way you settle some of these things is through litigation. If the courts have to decide and set precedent so that going forward, everybody knows uh, what the issues are. And I think we're seeing that now in the world of, of sustainable mobility, uh, clean transportation, whatever you want to call it, uh, with things like autonomous vehicles and, and micro rentals of scooters or, or, or shared vehicles, all of a sudden this is big new legal world. So I think it's just fascinating to watch and it's something most people don't think about, you know, maybe the darker side of sustainability and clean technology. Um, but watch this space and, uh, you know, Full Employment for Lawyers Act of 2019 and beyond. Yeah, it doesn't have to be just the darker side. It could be simply quality of service, right? And that will be a huge issue. We've seen, we've seen the um, insurance policies rise up over wind farm. Um, is, is the wind farm producing what it's supposed to be produced per this contract? So quality of, sh of service will be a big, big deal, I think. Um, it, it isn't just the, the, the darker, uh, more horrific sides of this, but... Um, Stay tuned. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's move over to another story that uh, uh, marks the return of a column that kind of went on hiatus for a couple of years called Proof Points. Proof Points is written by our friends uh, at GlobeScan in Canada. They're a public opinion research consultancy that works on brand, reputation, sustainability kinds of things. And um, does uh, some of the most comprehensive global surveys uh, out there on a whole wide range of topics. And they just did a survey, and this is what this article is about, called How Can Business Help People to Take Action on Climate Change? They did a study with IKEA, involved 14,000 individuals across 14 countries. Uh, and it found that even if climate change is widely acknowledged, it remains a distant complex issue for most people. People know about it, but they can't really understand how the issue will affect them personally, and they don't know what they can do about it. Um, nearly 90% of the people surveyed, again, 14,000 people in 14 countries, said they'd be willing to make an effort to change their behavior to reduce the impact on the climate, 
and they would do it more if they knew what to do and had the support they needed and saw the benefits of their actions. So that's, that's pretty interesting. I also have to say that as a student of surveys on sustainability issues for 20 or more years, I this 90% thing kind of, you know, sticks in my craw a little bit because we see a lot of surveys going back really to uh, the first surveys I remember on, on green marketing in 1989, so 30 years ago, that said that if only they knew what to do, 86% of consumers would gladly buy the greener product. And then, of course, they didn't. And so I, I, I do think, however, that this 90%, even if it's, even if it's off by uh, you know, uh, 10 or 20%, still means there's a lot of people who are looking to be part of the solution. Yeah, and I, this, when I read this piece, I thought about immediately the whole issue of producer responsibility, right? The responsibility of someone who created a product to help educate consumers about what to do with that product um, at the end of its life. This is a particular uh, issue, I think, with the circular economy rising up. And, and right now, as we, uh, you know, I've read all manner of stories here in the United States of how the systems are falling apart on the recycling side, right? Because, because of a lot of different reasons. Um, one being that the, the cost of, of uh, dealing with that has become so expensive because of the, the China policy changes. But the other part of it is that still, you know, companies, they sell these products and they kind of like, yeah, you guys deal with it. You know, it's your responsibility. And so I think that sort of sentiment is changing. And I, I've seen some of the larger companies, especially um, beverage companies and, and the ones that are responsible for all the plastics that are they're traveling into the, into the world. Um, they're, I think, starting to get a better grip on the fact that they need to be more responsible on their end. And I don't know, maybe it's a, a change of, of focus for them. Um, and I, and yeah, I know <laughs> I can be, I'm very, I'm, I think I tend to be a little bit more like a, the hopeful optimist. Um, I, I can be cynical occasionally. Um, I think you're cynical more than I am, but I, I feel like we're hitting a little bit of a tipping point on this. Um, and I love that this, this data has come back out and we'll see, we'll see, I guess. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, I, I'm not that cynical of a person, but I am, you're right, really cynical about the willingness and ability of consumers to change. And in fact, in the survey that, uh, that Globescan reported, uh, and uh, there's some just things to that point, by the way, this is uh, Carolyn Holm, who is part of the Globescan team, uh, wrote this, when asked who's not doing enough to address climate, first and foremost was government, 56%. Uh, and of course, keep in mind, this is again, 14 countries. This is not just a US-focused thing. So 56% of people said the government's not doing enough. 44% said businesses aren't doing enough. And only a third, 34%, said that people, consumers presumably, are not d putting in enough effort when it comes to climate change. So I'm still not clear that people are really accepting responsibility. Uh, and again, they say, if only we knew what to do. I totally agree that we need to give people more information, but so much of what they need to do um, are things that usually are sacrifice kinds of things, even if it costs a little bit more money or do a little bit less, eat less meat, for example, drive less. Uh, and so 
those aren't happy stories to tell. The, the, where this becomes an opportunity, and this goes back to stuff I've been talking about forever, that sustainability succeeds with consumers and businesses, but consumers in particular, only when it equals better, when something is you know, cheaper to own and operate, uh, better performance, uh, made locally, or whatever better means, higher, uh, you know, recyclable, renewable, uh, less toxic, cooler for my image, whatever that means. That's why something like a Tesla car, uh, even though it costs more, uh, perhaps, or that's coming down too in price, that it, it just was so cool and so high-performing uh, that it, it made the difference. So in the Prius, uh, 15, 20 years ago, same thing. And, and so a lot of, we still haven't gotten to the point where sustainability equals better for most people. That's not the people's fault necessarily, not our fault. It's, it's partly the fact that the products and services that make things better are, aren't out there yet. And so we need to do that. And, and I think, you know, there is a certain, and this is where my optimism comes in, Heather, there's a, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. If those products and services are available and they're better in some fashion, people will buy them. Our final Week in Review piece this week comes from our longtime columnist, Ellen Weinreb. Uh, her piece is The Talent Show. Her column is The Talent Show. And this, this column is the result of a, of a survey that she did, sort of an informal survey of how political polarization is affecting the sustainability strategies at, uh, among CSOs of really big companies. So she went out and talked to a panel of folks that she regularly surveys, if you will. And she basically, what her, her thesis that she was exploring was, okay, we know there's a lot of polarization among um, companies and people and among society on, on lots of different issues, uh, climate change, gender, wage disparity, immigration, et cetera. How is this affecting the strategy of, um, of CSOs at big companies? And to be quite frank, I think that, and this is a, a good this is a good, in my opinion, um, finding. Um, she she said absolutely. Um, you know, we should be worrying about these issues, and and potentially, the they might change the way you talk about things. But a lot of these uh, the folks that she spoke with were really staying the course, right? It wasn't really having a major operational impact, but it was forcing them to be more thoughtful on how um, the company communicated about these issues, especially not just externally, but internally as well. Yeah, I think uh, that's an important point is that there's the external and the internal piece of this. I think that what's I admire most about uh, CSOs, sustainability executives in big companies, is that they do just stay the course. Uh, hell or high water, recession or good times, Democrat or Republican administrations in the U.S., pressure on you know, against sustainability or for it. The reason they can do this is that it's not about politics. It's not about legislation. In a lot of cases, it's about making the company better, creating value, reducing costs, engaging suppliers, engaging and attracting talent. And so, you know, staying focused on, on the issues that they're dealing with around buildings and facilities and products and services and operational uh, efficiencies and supply chains and all of those things is 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 really apolitical and nonpartisan, and so they get to keep doing that all year round. And so 
the challenge comes when I think, and this is where uh, I'm hoping to see a, a sea change in the next year or two, is when companies actually step up and speak up, speak out on some of these issues. Uh, and we're going to be seeing, I think, over the next year or so, particularly as we head into the election season in the United States. Of course, we're already in the election season, but really as it heats up, more pressure on companies to take a stand, particularly on climate change. Because you've got all these companies that are doing all these things around their operations and their supply chains and their products and services and are true, true leaders, but they're either quiet on climate change or in some cases may actually be working against the interest through the, their lobbying efforts in government relations by supporting politicians or supporting issues or, you know, so there's the benign neglect where they're just not taking a stand. And then there's the neglect neglect where they're they're actually working against uh, these issues. And I think getting that alignment right and shining a light on companies that are and aren't particularly aren't is going to take place. And so I don't know where the sustainability executives fit into that equation, how much they're going to be involved with that, how much they're going to you know, be outspoken or be providing the support on the back end of whether this is simply a marketing communications and government relations kind of thing. Uh, but uh, it, it, I think for all of the great work that they're doing in keeping, you know, heads down, uh, you know, stay the course, uh, no matter what's going on out there in the political world, they're going to be facing, I think, a different world in the not too distant future. This episode is sponsored by Stanford University's Strategies for Sustainability Professional Education Program. Help your organization move sustainability from the margins to the core of its mission. Courses online and in person, visit globalimpact.stanford.edu. Hi, this is Katie Ferenbacher, senior writer with Green Biz, and I just got off the stage at the Three Revolutions Conference at UC Davis, and I talked with Lewis Stewart, the CIO of Sacramento. And Lewis, you painted a picture of what your dream would be in five years of Sacramento and how it's going to change uh, 5G and connectivity and how it's going to change transportation in Sacramento. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, in five years, I would love Sacramento to be thought of as uh, a mobility hub and seen as one of the standard setters uh, for mobility across the world. And so what that means is continuing these conversations with autonomous driving companies uh, to get them to understand uh, that one, <laughs> they probably should work with cities, uh, not necessarily just go in and disrupt, um, but two, uh, that we're actually trying to help uh, improve the safety of, of the performance uh, and also provide an, an, another option uh, for citizens uh, you know, in the state and looking at how these vehicles uh, you know, can go from jurisdiction to jurisdiction um, seamlessly. And, and Sacramento should be that place uh, where we set those standards. And you're talking about a living, living laboratory uh, using 5G as this kind of platform. Tell me about that. Look, so Sacramento is, is an awesome place to, to come demonstrate the viability of a product or service. And opening up the city and to think of it as a living laboratory we have um, eight districts, we have 500,000 citizens, uh, we have three universities, uh, we have the capital, regulators, legislators, all in one city, federal, state, local. And so why not come to Sacramento, 
uh, and demonstrate what you can do. See if it works. See if the citizens, if that's really what they want. And then help the policymakers do some evidence-based policymaking so that you know, what's rolled out uh, is actually beneficial for, for the citizens of California and thus the citizens of the world. And so for listeners who don't necessarily know much about 5G, how can such a, a fast wireless broadband network help with transportation? So a lot of transportation needs moving forward are going to be around safety of uh, operations of a vehicle. And so if, uh, if, uh, if through 5G you can get greater connectivity to a vehicle so that it can use AI and machine learning on board uh, to predict how and what's going to happen on a road, uh, you hopefully increase the safety and, and security of the citizens that are walking the road, that are driving the road, uh, that are interacting with these vehicles. Um, and so with, with 5G, we're hoping that, that reduced latency times uh, will help the vehicle learn faster what it's supposed to do. Last week in Atlanta, former Vice President Al Gore held a two-and-a-half-day training as part of his Climate Reality Project. Around 2,000 people attended the event. It's designed to empower citizens to become advocates for climate action in their communities. One of those attending was Green Biz's own Shandine Cedar, who joins me now. Hey, Shandine. Hey, Joel. So for people who don't know about Climate Reality Project, give us a thumbnail of the two-and-a-half days. What did you do? Yeah, so it's really three days, Thursday through Saturday, deep dive training session on how, as individuals, people can be members of the community and talk about climate change, whether it's giving presentations to their friends and family or really sitting in on a council, city council meeting and having these discussions with folks on the legislative side as well as how do you have a conversation with your commissioner, um, utility commissioner on in, in energy issues? So Al Gore was there. He did his famous three and a half hour presentation that really gave, gave a deep dive into what are the daily things that are going on in the world that attribute to climate change. And so that was that was about half of his presentation. And then what are the solutions? I think a big takeaway for me was the simple sentence of today we have the, the technology technology and solutions today to solve climate change. So it was an awesome 2,000 people packed room. Every seat was filled of these these leaders in the space. So 2,000 people, it's a good size crowd. Talk a little bit about who was there. What kinds of people, young, old, where were they from? Yeah, so coming from the Green Biz audience, you know, we really focus on the corporate and industrial side of the conversation and climate and accelerating the clean economy. So this was a really good reminder that in the folks in the room were the grassroots activists, the, you know, kind of coming at it from that perspective. So there was kids there. There were folks that are just learning about climate change all the way up to city leaders. So it was a very wide spectrum of, of people in the room. So it was, it was very refreshing to me to kind of remember that the advocacy and grassroots side of things is an important part of the climate change. So how do you see using this? What do you plan differently now that you know all this? I think the what I was thinking about going into the training is as someone who's pretty progressive and, and left-leaning anyways, you know, we don't really 
challenge the idea of climate change and the statistics that you know surround this. So I really wanted the nuts and bolts on how to have this conversation with people who do not have the same viewpoint as I do. And I, I thought that was very helpful um, in having kind of a better understanding of how climate change works, what are the da- what's the data behind it, and how can we move forward. And one thing that surprised me about the event was the this year um, they focused really on how environmental and social justice is a huge part of this conversation and it can't just be people with time and resources you know fixing our linear economy so I thought that was a really awesome thing that they focused on um, they brought leaders in the community the event this year really focused on the southern states because those states are feeling the brunt of climate change on the front lines, so to speak. So that environmental and social justice aspect was elevated very well, I thought. So at the end of all this, did you leave feeling more hopeful or less hopeful? I know that Al Gore's presentation can be kind of depressing. How did you come away from this? I came away definitely feeling more empowered and energized by the people in the room. Al Gore, he has his kind of unique way of getting excited about things. Um, So I came away kind of feeling that I need to go sit on my city council meetings and have these these discussions, especially as we are coming up on this election, election cycle. So really letting know, you know, as a constituent, what I feel about these issues is what I came away with. So finally, Shandine, um, I had asked you to play reporter and you graciously did that. You did an interview with the number two uh, to Al Gore, which is, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about who you talked to and then and, and, and we can play the clip. Yeah, so I was able to talk to Ken Berlin, who is the CEO and president of the Climate Reality Project. And the first question I asked him, you know, was to tell me a little bit about the, the training and the project overall. Well, we hope the attendees will come out of the training with real knowledge about climate change. They'll be able to go out and talk about climate change. They'll be able to give presentations on climate change. They'll be able to answer questions about climate change. As you know, climate change is a controversial issue in a lot of places. We think it's going to be a big political issue in the next election. And we think if people understand the issue and understand what's happening, that we'll do very well and and get the measures we need through. So yesterday we saw more than a million students strike for climate change. Um, These students represent the emerging generation of Gen Z. Um, So with with Gen Z and millennials, you know, these these folks are representing the largest demographic in in terms of um, spending potential. So the question is, how are young people influencing your work and um, how we focus, um, how you guys are focusing on the Climate Reality Project moving forward? Well, we work with young people in many different ways, one of which is we have chapters on college campuses. We have chapters on 29 college campuses. We have many kinds of programs where we're trying to reach out to young people. And I think we got probably five or 600 people here under 30. So we've got a very good uh, representative crowd on that. You know, young, young people are gonna be the largest demographic group. They're gonna be the largest spending group. I think they're gonna demand that companies pay attention to sustainable practices. They pay attention to climate change. And I think the companies do that will benefit from uh, doing that. It'll actually help their business not, and not hurt their business. It's also important to remember now that we're entering an era where renewable energy is getting cheaper than fossil fuel-based energy. So the kind of changes we want to bring about in addressing climate change 
are going to result in cheaper, cleaner energy in the United States for everyone, including American business. So in the presentation you gave a, a couple of moments ago on the main stage, um, you talked a little bit about the New Green Deal, and you talked about the three areas that it's focusing on, but a missing point that you said that's not right now being addressed. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, the missing point on the New Green Deal right now is it doesn't really include economic incentives. What it, what it has, it has very ambitious and needed goals to reduce our greenhouse gas emission. But what, what I think that we need in order to reach those goals, having strong economic incentives to transition away from fossil fuels to clean energy would be a very, very big plus. And those goals really fall into three categories, a carbon tax, a carbon cap and trade system, or economic incentives to lower the cost of renewable energy. I'm not sure which one or ones will be chosen, but that's where we are now. And you quoted a pretty impactful statistic. 92% of Democrats and 62% of Republicans support this. Can you just kind of flesh that out and what, what that actually is saying? Well, people have heard about the concept of New Deal, and we have very, very strong support for that right now. People don't really know the details yet, and so you know our job here at Climate Reality is to make sure we keep that support as we really develop those programs and, those, and that legislation. But people want action on this. The polls are absolutely overwhelming that people think we need to transition to a clean energy economy. They support renewable energy. 70% or more people understand that climate change is real. More than 60% of people understand that it's caused by humans, although the evidence is 99.9% that it's real and caused by humans. But we have very, very strong public support for what we're doing. So as we head into the rest of 2019, which is the beginning of a new election cycle, what are you and Climate Rheology Project hoping to accomplish? Well, we're really working on two different things in a parallel way. One is we're trying to build support now for the new, for new Green Deal type legislation. We know we won't get it until 2021, but we still want to start the process now because the new Green Deal is still pretty general. We've got to fill in all the policy pieces and come up with a strong piece of legislation. Meanwhile, at the federal level, we'll, we may, there may be some economic incentives we can support, like various kinds of carbon credits, and we'll, and we'll do that if they come up. And we'll continue to work. We do a lot of work at the state and city level and local level, and there's been a lot of action at those levels on addressing greenhouse gases. And we'll continue to work with the business community. We do ask business to go 100% renewable, and we think that you know the business community has been a major contributor to the reductions we've had in greenhouse gas in the United States. Our, our emissions are down 12% since 2005, so we are making some progress despite an administration that's fighting progress tooth and nail. Just one last question to wrap it up. We have this election coming up. Is there anyone that you are backing or hoping that will run? Well, C3, we can't back anyone because we can't do that as a, as a not-for-profit. Personally, like everybody else, I'm, not, I'm trying to figure out who I should personally back. I don't really know the answer to that yet. But I think what's going to happen in this is we've got a field of a dozen or more Democratic candidates. And I think whoever emerges from that is going to turn out to be a very strong candidate. It's going to be very hard to emerge. And whoever does it, I think will run a very, very strong race. Great. Thanks, Ken, for joining me at GreenBiz 350, and we look forward to watching your organization more closely this year. Thank you very much. Before we sign off this week, I want to shine a light on our 30 under 30 nomination process. Uh, this is something we've been doing for the past, uh, this will be our fourth year, I believe, of honoring 30 individuals under the age of 30 who are leaders, uh, emerging leaders in the sustainability field. 
The nomination window is open. It closes on April 5th. We've got some tremendous nominees from all over the world. This is a global network casting, thanks to help from our partners, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and BSR, which are both doing outreach around the world as well as in the United States. We would love to hear from you. Who are the young professionals tackling some of the sustainability issues that are just rising stars? in companies, in nonprofits, uh, in city and, and state government, uh, pretty much anywhere. We would love to know with them, about them. Uh, they, the only criteria is that they must not have reached their birthday, their 30th birthday, by June 3rd, 2019, when we'll publish this year's list. If you go to greenbiz.com on the homepage, you should see a link to that. We'll also post a link on the webpage for this week's podcast. So 30 under 30, let's hear about it. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find what you need to know about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're on that page, you can also check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Greenbiz events. And our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five weekly e-newsletters. Heather's Verge Weeklies comes out on Wednesdays, actually every other Wednesday, alternating with Shauna Rappaport. My Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning, and there's others too on transportation and mobility, clean energy, and the circular economy. Heather and I will be back next week, as usual. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Stanford University's Strategies for Sustainability Professional Education Program. Explore the frameworks and tools needed to promote sustainability in your organization. Courses online and in person. Visit globalimpact.stanford.edu.